am ready. Brenda? Uh, I'm ready. Okay, 534. And can you do roll call, please? Yes. Loretta Mallon? Here. Niha Banger? Here. Lucia Angel? Here. B. Franks Walker? Here. Richard Harvey Jr. Eric Murphy. Mark Smith. Khalil Toki. Ali Yessing. Here. We have a quorum. Okay. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, I hope everyone's doing well and staying healthy during this um, very uh, trying time again, I guess. Um, I don't have anything special to report um, other than the fact that I know that there's some new housing going up for the homeless, which we're going to be talking about later anyway. So I'll wait till our presenters talk about that. Um, okay, we do have letter B, we have an action item. And we need to approve the minutes from our last meeting. Oops, and, and Loretta, wanna, um, you can Hold acknowledge on. Smith has um, entered the room as well. So in other words... Who has? I'm sorry. Mark. Oh, hi, Mark. Hello. Hi, hi, hi. Okay. All right, so uh, we want to, um, can I get a motion to approve the minutes of um, our July meeting? I make a motion that we approve the minutes from the last meeting in July. Okay. Anyone second it? I second that motion. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Madam Chair, now it would go to a vote. Hold on. I'm sorry. Um, now that two motions have been made, it would go to a vote. Okay. All right. Uh, let me get my list here. <laughs> okay. Oh, gosh. Neha, finger? Yay or nay? Uh, yay. Lucia, angel? A. E. Franks Walker. Yes. Richard Harvey Jr. Eric Murphy. Mark Smith. Yeah. Yay or nay? Mark. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, yay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Tony. <laughs> Toki. Okay, Ali Yassin? Yay. Okay, are there any um, names? Okay. The yays. Approved it. Okay, Damon, are you here? I am. Thanks so much. Great, awesome. <laughs> 
Hi, David. Um, you're up for C for our I, report. I couldn't make it home today, so joining you guys from clinic uh, again. Uh, <laughs> see everyone. I'll try to be brief because I think we have a lot of uh, very interesting and exciting stuff on the agenda today. Um, so we haven't been uh, giving the COVID updates in the, with the same formality as, uh, as before, uh, but I think it's important for everyone to know that, you know, just like the Delta virus seems to be a major cause uh, of, a, of another surge in the general community, we're seeing the same evidence of a surge in people experiencing homelessness. So really massive in increases in um, cases around our community and um, very large increases in the numbers of outbreaks. Um, so as of last week, there was at one point, I think there were 15 active outbreaks in shelters or congregate living environments with people experiencing homelessness, um, which is putting a lot of stress on the, on the system, obviously. I know the county's uh, continuing to, you know, actively keep vaccination programs going and testing programs going as they're responding to all those outbreaks. Um, and we can certainly ask more questions of uh, Carrie Abbott, who's joining us later, um, about um, about the isolation and quarantine housing and other COVID-related housing, because um, I know folks had uh, a bunch of questions about that last time. Mm -hmm. um, but any any other questions now that would be more appropriate for me than for David, are you finding um, more breakthrough cases, or are these unvaccinated people? I don't have any data on the um, on the rates of cases in people experiencing homelessness. Uh, you know, specifically among vaccinated or unvaccinated populations. I think it's reasonable to expect that it would be similar uh, to data overall, which show that you know. A, a, Many, many more of the cases are among people who are um, who are unvaccinated, and okay. um, vaccination. Oh, <laughs> lights going out here. <laughs> vaccination. Um, see how we save money here at uh, Alameda. <laughs> I know. Um, vaccination continues to be very protective against uh, you know severe disease and hospitalization. Um, the one thing we are seeing, you know, in the in the data around the country is that. Um, that people who are vaccinated, if they do get infected, it's less likely to get infected, but if they do get infected, they still have lots of virus in their nose and throat and can spread it fairly effectively. Um, and so that's this one reason that, you know, masking remains really, really critically important for everyone um, in the pandemic. Right. The next thing I wanted to mention just briefly is that, you know, um, Various municipalities have different, you know, regulations around evictions um, and um, and the eviction moratorium uh, here in Alameda County. Um, obviously, the statewide eviction moratorium is set to expire at the end of September, um, and um, we can't really say much about what we predict is going to happen with homelessness. There's been a, a good report done about the statewide expectations around COVID's COVID's effect on homelessness. That's pretty dire. Um, but I think um, we're you know, starting to think about this a little bit, have invited tenants together, which is a, a tenants rights organizations to provide a training to our community health workers here across our system on, um, you know, the, on people's rights um, with regard to eviction and make sure that all of our staff are aware and, and all of our community health worker staff who 
deal with you know housing as an issue are aware of what the laws are, aware they, of, of where they can get support, and aware of how to make referrals to those organizations. Um, so I, I just wanted to mention that as a piece of work that um, you know we're we're excited about that partnership with Tenants Together and, and hearing from them and Two One One, and I think interested in figuring out how to do more partnership around that, especially since. So many of the people experiencing homelessness in our um, homeless health center are people who are doubled up. Um, it's not necessarily only, you know, uh, although we, we absolutely see folks who are chronically homeless and living on the streets or living in shelters, but we see a lot of people who are housing insecure and facing eviction for whom, um, you know, our staff knowing, knowing um, the laws and knowing where we can get support is really, really important. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to give you some more information about that as we move forward. That's a partnership with Lily McRae, who you all heard from um, last month. Um, and finally, I just wanted to um, extend a thank you to Dr. Jamaluddin, who's joined us a bunch um, in this uh, meeting. He's our um, chief medical officer at Alameda Health System, I think through this week. Um, and then uh, he submitted his resignation, I think last month, and, um, and I think his last day is this Friday. So he's not on the call right now, but I did want to make sure all, all of you were aware of that and just um, to thank Dr. Jamaluddin for, you know, all the support he's given us in ambulatory and in the Homeless Health Center and um, for his really, you know, strong interest and support of, of um, care for people experiencing homelessness in our system. I mean, I remember when COVID started, you know, his focus right from the beginning of the pandemic was, you know, um, how, how are we thinking about the, the patients that we serve that almost no other health system is going to be thinking about and in particular people experiencing homelessness. So he was a big champion, for example, of getting vaccinations on the inpatient service, which wasn't always like the most popular thing. And um, that's just one example, I think, of the kind of leadership that he brought to um, to the work that we do and wanted to make sure that we, we thanked him for that. And with that, that concludes my report. Um, Madam Chair, I can take any questions. Any questions from anyone? And are you seeing a greater rates among particular age groups, or is it, uh, or is it, is it following the same trends as in the general population? A greater what among age groups? Uh, any particular age groups that are more severely hit than uh, other age groups that you're uh, seeing? I've seen some data across um, different ethnicities, and it's it's actually remarkably different across different ethnicities in the county. Um, I can try to send out the slide wow. on that. Um, there are, um, I think, among African Americans and uh, and Latinx people, um, more younger folks who are unvaccinated. Um, and you know, we're continuing to see the high the high rates of cases in the in in the same communities that have been affected with the past surges. So it's really very similar patterns, but I think. Um, underscored by the fact that, you know, younger populations, particularly in, in those ethnicities, are not as um, vaccinated. And um, so I can, I can send that out so you can see more of the, more of the detail on that. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Anyone else? Okay. So we can, thank you, Damon, for that report. Um, we can move on to um, item D. And forgive me if I mispronounce your name. Um, is it Elizabeth, Nina? Is that it's close enough, Elizabeth. 
Say that again, I'm sorry. El Zabal? Oh, El Zabal. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, you're up. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. My name is Elsa Benayman. Uh Thank you for inviting me to present um, uh, this year's, uh, upcoming year's CY22 budget for the healthcare for the homeless center. Um, I am one of the finance managers in financial planning and analysis, and um, uh, uh, we'll be glad to uh, present this and then take questions um, either during the presentation or at the end. Um, so what we are seeing here is um, the calendar year 22 um, uh, budget for, uh, for budget for the healthcare for the homeless center. Um, this is submitted annually uh, to HRSA, and it uses um, uh, the, the the BPR, which we will discuss in subsequent pages of the UDS and the SAC to estimate the overall budget. Um, what we're going to show, we can go to, um, actually we can go to page 12. Basically the budget will constitute both the revenues and the expenses um, that are um, in accordance with the HRSA requirements and show the overall um, cost and uh, revenues associated with the healthcare for the homeless center. So here what you're seeing, there are three columns. Um, the middle column shows you all the dollars associated with the federal grant, um, and it's coming via the county. Uh, so these are specific um, revenues, and then all the expenses associated with personnel or supplies that are offset by the the, the, the Fed grants. The the far right column is what is um, uh, AHS expenses for the healthcare for the homeless center that is not offset by any federal funds. So what is um, important to keep in mind is that there's two factors that we use to estimate costs. So we, um, we assume that healthcare for the homeless patient population constitutes about 5.67% of the ambulatory, overall ambulatory um, medical encounters and therefore the expenses within ambulatory. If there are costs outside of the ambulatory scope of services, so let's say IT, finance, quality, um, so we call them system-wide support services, um, Homeless Health Center constitutes about 0.5% of those overall system-wide um, services. So those are the two factors that we use to figure out the FTEs and their associated expenses for all the dollars that you see under personnel, under benefits, um, under supplies, um, um, and um, at the very end is indirect charges. Um, so this is all based on our actual experience in fiscal year 21, and that is the base year that we're using to project what calendar year 22 is going to look like for healthcare for the homeless um, center. So you'll notice that at the bottom, uh, for all the all the uh, different areas, the total is $9.853 million, the bottom right. And so those are the total expenses that AHS is absorbing that is not offset by um, a federal, uh, federal funding source. If we go to page 13, this is a just a summary of the dollars associated with what is coming via the grant, uh, the, the, the federal grant. So it's roughly the total dollars associated is $922,000. 
On the far right is the $9.853 million that we just saw in the page above. Let's keep going to page 14. And this shows you uh, sort of in the two-thirds of the way down. You'll notice there are bold numbers, and it basically shows you uh, that 3,200 are about the unique patients um, that are associated with the healthcare for the homeless patient population. They produce about 18,500 total visits um, in the ambulatory setting. Those 18,500 visits, they constitute about 5.6% of the total visits in ambulatory. And that's where the 5.6% that I mentioned earlier came from. Then you'll also notice that there are dollars um, per type of payer. Um, so each payer is broken out, and you can see at the bottom, uh, it averages to about $209 per medical encounter, such that those 18,500 visits uh, for an average uh, rate of 209 will generate a patient revenue of $3.86 million. So if you recall, in the previous page, we had mentioned that our total expense is, is um, estimated to be about $9.85 million against a revenue of 3.86. So this leaves us a gap of about $5.99 million um, that, that needs to be offset. So we estimate that that is offset by the supplemental funding uh, that we have such that we have a balanced budget at the end of the day. Um, so that is the very bottom part of this page. Uh, so you'll see the local government line nine is about the 4.4. It's the largest share of those supplemental funds that we believe is um, that is coming from Measure A funds. If we keep going to, let's say, page 17 and 18, Brenda, there we go. This is basically the details that shows you how we estimated the the FTEs that are within the ambulatory setting that is supporting the homeless health center and the FTEs slash personnel that are the part of the system-wide um, uh, functional areas that support the homeless health center. So this is kind of the estimation of those personnel and their associated costs that was um, discussed above in page 12. And then the middle column shows you the FTEs that are uh, specific, specifically funded by the grant. Um, page 18 will show you the total of these FTEs for both areas, such that about 52.66 FTEs are um, AHS FTEs um, that are, as I mentioned, non-funded by several funds. 6.5 total is associated with um, with the grant um, with the grant funding. If we go back to page 16, this is where Heather can walk you through the specifics of the the personnel and the dollars associated with um, the grant funding from the feds. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. So on this page, we see the grant dollars associated with staff specifically to support the mobile health clinic. Um, you'll see our individual names because in this form that we need to submit, uh, we have to identify the specific people that are related to that. And you'll also see the percentage of our FTE dedicated to homeless health center grant activities. Um, one of the things I wanted to point out specifically is our dentist and dental assistants, which are added into this um, new this year. Uh, so we are projecting the cost of a 0.5 dentist as well as a 0.5 uh, registered dental assistant. Um, and we're projecting, requesting those funds to be covered through our federal grant, which will require us to reallocate the funds that the county um, sends to us 
some staff that are fully dedicated to healthcare for the homeless grant activities that are also not funded by the federal dollars or the grants. Um, in particular, you'll see uh, Brenda's time there is not associated with grant dollars, but is supported 100% through Alameda Health System. And Dr. Francis's um, dollars, again, are not the federal dollars, so some of them are funded from the county through other funding that they have allocated to Alameda Health System for his position, but again, they're not the federal funds. And in this report, we're required to list specifically the federal dollars as they support our staff. And so each of these um, staff, you'll see that the base salary is compared to the amount that the uh, federal funds offset. They're not 100% offset. So Alameda Health System is uh, contributing and completing the cost of each of these people within the homeless health center and with the health clinic. I just wanted to explain that. Hey, Elizabeth, that concludes our presentation of the annual budget, correct? That's right. So I think next step, um, Loretta, would be to, um, this is an action item, so we presented yeah. the budget to you. So the action that you're calling for is to approve the health center budget, and then um, <laughs> we can do the discussion amongst, after you get the motion in the second, I think that's when we can have a discussion. Heather, okay. let me just interrupt. I think you can field some questions here because that might lend towards someone's decision whether or not to approve. Okay. Um, I don't know if you want to take that first. Thanks, Kayla. Yep. Um, so, Madam Chair, if you'd like, you can open it to any questions, or I guess if there are none, then as Heather said, you could ask for a motion. Okay. Um, Is this, is this page 
page here, right, yeah, Eric? That's the page. Yep, that's right the one. Here. So um, the the amount that the federal so we typically from the county are allocated a specific amount of money, and and regardless of changes to our program, that amount of money doesn't necessarily change. And so this represents the federal dollars that apply towards those funds, or, or I'm sorry, towards those staff, and then Alameda Health System makes up the difference. So the person, so let's see, I'll, I'll use Cameron as an example. He's 100% dedicated to homeless health center grant activities, and he will be fully paid for his job, and he's 100% working for Alameda Health System. The federal dollars will pay $56,000 of his salary, and then Alameda Health System picks up the rest. Does oh, that okay. help? I got that. I just saw a couple of categories where it looked like the, the adjustments went down. Or okay, maybe I'm looking at the Let's go to page, um, I think it's page 15. Go back one page. Uh, one more. I think it's two more, actually. It's going to be page 14. 15, 14? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it looks like 13. Sorry. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm working with you here. It's going to be 12. Let's just keep going back, Brenda. You're doing great. Way back there on page 12. Is, so are we referring to this page now, Eric? Uh, oh, no, the same page. Uh, on 16, I think. Um, where it shows the uh, salary and then to the right of it, it shows the adjusted amount and uh, it looked like the adjusted amount on a couple of categories uh, was, the amount was, for the salary was reduced or appeared that way. But not for the ones that's 100% covered, but like, uh, oh, sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, salary adjustment to yeah. cap. That's what you're referring yeah. to? Okay. So yeah, me... that's the one. There you go. There you go. I'm just curious. Yeah, I'm just curious. I'm not yeah. well Matt, Matt Keith, their salary, yeah, it's, it's not actually the way it works. Um, the salary was not actually adjusted. Um, the federal funding um, is required. There's a cap to any salary, which means that the federal government will only pay a maximum of $199,300 for that position, regardless of what our salary here in California for a position is. So even if our salaries are higher than that, we would never be able to pay that full amount from the grant dollars. We'd always have to supplement. And so that's just the reminder right there from the, the federal government saying the maximum amount we'll pay any one person for any job from federal funds is this amount. Okay. Oh, I got it. So the county covers the, the difference? Alameda Health System will cover the difference. Correct. Okay. Got it. That's. That's where else it looks Right, and just keep in mind for the federal government part of this is because this is a it's a national program, right? And and you have salaries throughout the country, and and California salaries and cost of living is particularly higher than a lot of other places um, in our country. So this is where we notice that. Okay, gotcha. Right. Are we anticipating uh, that we'll be able to meet this budget? Do we have enough to cover the budget for this year? Are we anticipating any shortfalls in funding based on sort of, you know, how things have been over the last year? Or is this pretty much in line with the funding that is available? 
think I, I, I can kind of field that question and then maybe pass it to Catherine. Um, oh my gosh, every time I talk. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's on a timer waiting for the time. You need a snapper. You need a clapper. Yeah, so, I, you know, we're, we're um, uh, a part of an organization that's a part of an organization that has, you know, a roughly $1 billion budget. Um, and, um, and we really don't actively manage revenue against expenses, even at the level of the ambulatory services department. We really manage that, you know, at the level of the entire organization. And Alameda Health System is always subject to a lot of challenging um, projections around what money is going to come in the door. You can see, you, you know, you can see in our budget how dependent we are on supplemental funding a lot of which is related to sort of complex, you know, calculations um, that um, and complex sort of reconciliation payments and cost adjustments and things like that. And so I think every year um, it's, it's hard to say, you know, exactly how much is going gonna, is gonna to land here or there. I think what's been consistently true is that our ambulatory budget has been, you know, supported um, throughout the year, you know, over recent years. We have not had to make any large cuts to the budget, um, even through the COVID pandemic in ambulatory, we've been able to, um, to, you know, add elements to respond to COVID with the supplemental funding that we've gotten from the federal government. So, you know, if, if our trends continue in the same direction, we anticipate, you know, roughly having this same amount to, available to us. I think the, another question that we have is sort of on the upside also, you know, how is it that when supplemental funding comes in that is dedicated system-wide, um, you know, obviously, when we have grant-specific funding that comes to us, for example, the federal HRSA grant, you know, that comes into the cost center, and you can see the sort of detailed allocations, and, and we manage that and report that to you directly. When there's something like the quality improvement program that comes into the system as a whole, um, it's harder for us to know how much of that is allocated to ambulatory, how much of that is then allocated to homelessness, <laughs> How much of that is available for the priorities that you all establish as a board for us? And I think one of the things I'm looking forward to out of our strategic planning process is to be able to establish some priorities and ask those questions of the of the of you know the board of trustees and the Alameda Health System leadership, so that we can figure out you know when there's system-wide funding that in, that absolutely supports part of the scope of our work. What is our role as a co-applicant board? In, in being able to prioritize, you know, that, that type of spending. Um, but I think, I, I think it's unlikely, you know, that we're going to, that if, if past patterns hold, it's unlikely that we're going to have major cuts during the course of a budget year to the ambulatory budget. And maybe, Catherine, you can, you can say anything you need to, the, to temper that or change it or revise it. Yeah, no, I um, agree with everything you said. And I, I think the only thing in addition that I would add is, Right, the, um, uh, the programs that are on our HRSA scope, right, are, are their federally qualified health centers. And part of how, actually, the basis for how a federally qualified health center is paid is based off of expenses. And so if we set things up correctly, we actually get paid for the amount of um, expense that we incur in taking care of our patients within that um, FQHC location. So there's some work that we need to do to make sure that our um, 
fees for our FQHCs are um, set correctly. Um, but in general, big picture, um, that's how FQHCs are set up, which means that, um, you know, mid-year through, you know, you know exactly what you're um, going to, what you, how you need to budget for an FQHC because it's based off of how much you are expecting to spend. Why is the state funding so low in the projected income? I think that's, uh, I, I think Elzeba, you and I asked you the same question. I think it's related to historical allocations and it's the yeah. way that we've chosen to do it. I, again, I don't think the scope of the supplemental funding that comes to our system as a whole, um, I don't think that the amount is this small. Um, but I, I think, you know, this is the way that we've decided to, um, to report this amount of supplemental funding for the homeless health center. But that said, I think much, much of the state, you know, funding, for example, the quality improvement program that comes from the state, um, funds the scope of service that, that we're providing within the homeless health center to people experiencing homelessness. So, um, I think that's an important question that I'm hoping, you know, with the conclusion of our strategic planning process and as we sort of engage the strategic planning process at Alameda Health System, we can get a, a better answer to for you than the one that we have right now. Okay. Hi, this is Heather. I will also add um, that Medi-Cal reimbursement, much of that Medi-Cal reimbursement is coming from the state. So the, the state, uh, underneath where it says state, those are supplemental funds outside of the reimbursement for Medi-Cal patients but the state is, is putting the bill in other ways through the Medi-Cal program. Okay, so that's why that's adjusted perhaps lower compared to the federal. No, I don't, I think that there's, that there's still state supplemental funding. I, I think it's just a point of clarity that, you know, when we get paid for, by Medicaid, we're getting paid by the state as well. But there are state okay. supplemental funds that I think your question is, a bit, I asked the same one, Loretta, like why is that as low as it is? Because it seems yeah, it, it should be higher. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, hi, this is Mark. Uh, I'm sorry if uh, if you guys saw my video glitch. Uh, unfortunately, I had technical difficulties. I had to go to <laughs> phone. Uh, so I missed part of some of the things you guys were talking about regarding the budget. I had looked at some of this earlier uh, before the meeting. And um, I, I guess one of my concerns is that, um, that, for instance, I believe there was one department or one area that, um, that had to do with um, quality. Um, oh, I forget what it was called. It was, um, uh, I think it had to do with quality of service. Um, let me see if I can find it real quick. But... It had something to do with um, uh, quality control or or someone that oversees oversees uh, quality of service, and I um, and I was looking at um, the projected um, expenditure for that, and I thought it was awfully low. Um, since kind of our board is in part kind of in the business of trying to ensure that there is um, there is a, a quality of service um, and 
And if there is uh, another entity within the hospital that is being funded to ensure that, um, there certainly they should be uh, funded beyond uh, the numbers that I saw earlier, um, because that would only help. Because um, that would only help what we're doing. I mean, I mean, it would it would, it would make sense that um, that 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 would go in hand in hand with what we're trying to do. If I'm making any sense. Yeah, if uh, I could take that. Uh, so I'm looking at the the numbers. It's basically in you. You saw it in. Uh, I think it's on the later, like page 17 or 18. You'll notice the quality comes out to be. Uh, you know, it's less than a point point five FTE for sure. So basically, it's based on that point five percent that I mentioned earlier. This is um, homeless health center constitutes about point five percent of the the big system-wide departments, quality being one of them. So quality, HR, finance, um, pharmacy, these are all system-wide cost centers that support everybody across the board. Homeless Health Center constitutes 0.5%, so relatively small part of that big budget. So when we look at the total FTEs or personnel that are supporting um, in, in the quality department, there are roughly, let's say, 36 total FTEs in the whole system um, and 0.5% of that is relatively small. Um, so it is kind of a calculation based off of that factor. It, it does seem small, but that is that is the calculation factor that we're using for all system-wide um, um, areas that support um, a homeless health center. Okay. Um, and I'll also add, Mark, thank you so much for your question. It's great. Um, uh, quality improvement work happens on many in many levels in our system. So a lot of quality improvement work is being done by um, clinical staff and people working directly with patients as part of their activities and, and their work function. And then the quality improvement staff, the, the department that supports those activities is a separate department. But there's also quality improvement work that's happening by um, direct, direct line staff People like Damon and myself and um, other physicians, Catherine, we're also all part of quality improvements and it's embedded in the system. Oh, I see. Okay. And I do, I think there are, you know, economies of scale and quality, but I think for a $10 million health center, a full FTE um, quality staff, you know, I, like you have a good eye, Mark. I think that's right. I mean, I think, we, you know, if you had a $10 million health center, you wouldn't have a, you know, 15% staff member fully dedicated to quality, you'd have something more than that. But I think at, you know, at, at a billion dollar organization, you start to get economies of scale around analyzing the data, producing reports, things like that. And I think another important thing for us to think about, you know, as we analyze numbers like that is not just that, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, not just the, the overall number for the system, but I think, you know, practically speaking, a lot of where we, where, where it's determined what happens for, you know, homeless health center patients is in how ambulatory manages things. So I think it's the ambulatory correction, which is really important. So I think we have something probably like three to four FTE that are dedicated to ambulatory. And that's probably a place to kind of get your head around more like, how do we benchmark? What does that mean? It looks like for us to manage quality as managers. You know, we have 
I would think of it as us having about three or four people who are just focused on our ambulatory scope of work, you know, roughly. It doesn't, it doesn't translate exactly as that because it's a system-wide function, but I think this is the right kind of question to kind of get around your, get your head around what does our budget really mean for how we're managing things. And so that's another kind of element of explanation that I try to give. Um, I had a, this is Sia, I just kind of had a question related to that. Um, so it feels like the the most, um, what is funded through the, through the grant or like the, like the, what page is this? Um, sorry, like page 16, like the, all those people listed for like the healthcare for the homeless, a lot of it gets funded through the uh, federal grants. Um, but like the broader system-wide services that are also accessed by our um, homeless patients, like if we as a board or as like, you know, more um, a group focused more on providing the services for, for these folks, if we decided that we needed additional services provided in pharmacy, in, you know, behavioral health, like all these other mm -hmm. um, parts that kind of get covered um, through the broader system but aren't necessarily specific healthcare for the homeless programs. Um, how would we go about kind of talking to the folks in those departments or like what's the mechanism for us? Like, yes, they kind of get covered with the big umbrella of all the patients here because they're 5% of all our patients, but like we decide actually, no, there's specific programs that need to be focused for this specific group in this more specialized manner, can we pull that funding in toward a specific, like at Eastmont with our nurse practitioner? Like, you know, like, can we pull from that bigger pot, I guess? Um, or is it, it's only gonna be in that broader network and they have to access those services there, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I can try for that one too. I think that was part of my response to um, to Neha's question about, you know, the what if we didn't have enough money? I think, you know, the question about how would we pull additional money to our priorities is really what you're asking. Is that right, Lucia? Uh, yeah, toward our priorities that are more specialized for the group that we're, you know, mm -hmm. working with. Right, yeah. toward a more focused priority. I think our strategic planning process is an opportunity to do that. So we're required by HRSA for the health center to set prioritized goals for the health center that are, you know, service related goals, things inside the scope of what our health center does. And then we're also required to um, set financial management goals in relation to those goals. So that show that, you know, we're, we're spending the money efficiently toward achieving the, the goals that we've set as a co-applicant board. So HRSA requires us to do that every three years we, you know, we're in the middle of a process to do that. Um, and, um, and then I think that, you know, the document that actually contains those priorities and those financial management goals and, and our proposed, you know, our, our measures actually as a health center is, will be part of the, um, of the way that our system-wide leadership will be an input to the system-wide leadership considering, you know, how they, are going to consider allocating dollars um, and, and operating the health center. I think this is part of this shared governance relationship that I think is 
um, you know, complex to manage at all of these public public health centers. But I think in our process, that's the way that you know I'm imagining right now we'll be able to to set some priorities via the strategic planning process and then forward them through you know our budget process to Alameda Health System and kind of be able to monitor through the system and then come back to you all and say, based upon how the budget process looks in our system, here's how it looks like we're going to be able to monitor our progress toward this or that. Um, and and um, and then you all would be able, you know, every on a quarterly basis or on some sort of regular basis to see how we're making progress toward those kinds of specific goals, including including by monitoring our finances in a way that's, I think, deeper than what we've been able to do so far, you know, in our first few years as a co-applicant board. Sorry, just responding to that. So it sounded like, though, that we haven't, as a system, haven't done a very good job of being able to see how we're doing with our budget kind of like throughout the year. It sounds like it's just like a big picture, like at the end of the year, uh, um, like we wouldn't be able to say, you know, if 5% of our patients are, you know, people experiencing homelessness, 5% of the services are actually going to these patients and we're spending this money in this way with these specific patients. Like, it sounds like it's just, it's like a big bucket and they're kind of just falling to that. I think as a health center, we haven't reported the information that we have access to, to you all. What we have careful monitoring of on a monthly basis is, um, as ambulatory is, reporting against our um, utilization targets. So what we said at the beginning of the year as an organization as managed financial management targets are usually around utilization. Um, can we you know, achieve the number of visits that we set out to achieve? And then each month we report you know, back to ourselves, you know, are we, how are we doing on seeing the number of visits we wanna see? And then the, the separate measure that we tend to use is what's the cost per visit? Um, which we, we try to keep, you know, in a, in a balanced range. We don't want to spend too much money to not provide more service. And I think that's our proxy measure for that is, you know, are we, are we keeping our spending under control? So those are the two numbers as an ambulatory, you know, leadership team that we monitor and to some extent control over the course of a year. I think, um, I'm not sure those are meaningful for the types of questions that you're, the, the types of examples that you've brought up already, Lucia. Um, which I think are more about establishing certain programmatic targets. You know, how are we doing with expanding dental services? How are we doing with making sure that we have a special program to welcome new homeless patients into the clinics? Um, those kinds of things would require additional financial monitoring beyond the type that we do right now, which is really geared toward kind of the enterprise as a whole and visits as our main unit of productivity. Um. Excuse me for interrupting. Uh, this is Mark. Uh, Damon, um, is the reason why we don't have that generally is just because the way things have been, the way they've been traditionally done? Or are we, or, or is it that way simply because um, they're not personnel to do it, they're not, or they're not people specifically hired to do it? Um, and I wondered about this because it, I don't know if you guys remember, but several months back uh, I had mentioned the idea of us getting reports um, of asking people uh, who, uh, actual physicians who do work uh, in the mm -hmm. um, Healthcare for the Homeless program to, um, to, 
to come by if they're available uh, to kind of give us an overview of what they see going on. At least we would get some idea about what's being done in the name of uh, in the name of the dollars that are being spent there, uh, just so we have some idea that some actual progress is going on uh, specifically to that mission and not to the and not to the general hospital at large. So I think there's two parts of your question there. Uh, I'll maybe take the second one first, which is having physicians come. So it is our plan to have one of our wellness centers, um, you know, not just the physician leaders, but I think other other leaders in the wellness centers come and present so that you can get a clearer picture of what, um, you know, what the wellness centers uh, look like. Um, and then I think the first question was more about um, why haven't we had that kind of reporting at the homeless health center? I think it's partly like we, we it's partly both of the parts that you said, I think, go hand in hand, right? If we haven't done it in the past, we don't have the people to do it. So, you know, in order to do it in the future, we need to have the people to do it. And so we would have to establish reports that, for example, would take whatever we're currently doing um, around, you know, uh, productivity or utilization targets and cost per visit targets, and then make those relevant for the people who are in the homeless registry. And I think, as you all know, we've really just gotten the homeless registry, you know, in a functional place just in the last few months. So we're really in the middle of this process to, you know, really leverage the data we have. You know, we've, we've been on Epic for about a year. We've got the homeless registry built. The homeless registry then allows us to, you know, build these financial reports in this way. But along the way, we also do need the staffing to then say, you know, rather than scrambling for Elsa at the last minute to like do something for us, we do need the staffing to say like, okay, this is our plan to actually continue translating these numbers in a way that is useful for you as a governing board um, to actually direct our activities within within the homeless health center. So I think it's some of, I think the answer to that question, Mark, is that it's some of both. We've always done it some way. We're just we're just getting some of the data we need to be able to do it with the with the registry. And, and so we're therefore going to need to be, be able to pull in staff. Okay. You do give us a report monthly, though, as far as how many um, patients we see in the clinic, correct? Um, you just don't give us a breakdown of how, if they're Medi-Cal patients or, you know, that's the only thing I think you don't give us right now, correct? I think the payer mix and against against budgeted, right? What we look at when we're in in ambulatory meetings is a, is monthly against like actual utilization against budgeted utilization, and so we don't okay. we're not showing you we don't really have a budgeted homeless utilization right now, right. right? So we can't show you our actual homeless utilization against budgeted homeless utilization. Um, so even within that structure, we're not at a place where we could present this, the analogous data for the homeless health center. And then I think Lucia has additional questions about, you know, what about specific programmatic interests that may not necessarily mm -hmm. even be tied specifically to visits? And how would we monitor the financial management of, you know, motion toward those priorities? And now that we're doing the Smart Wellness Center, having Wanda work over there, just hypothetically, if all of a sudden we got a huge influx of patients, could we adjust the budget in the middle of the year for that? I, I, I'm sure we could. I think the mechanisms for doing so, you know, right now, it's 
clear to me what the mechanisms for doing so are. So maybe Catherine, you could say something about how we do that in the middle of the year when when we do, you know, like needs like COVID obviously, you know, require right. like that. Yeah, so the process, um, well, there's two things. Um, so if it, we do look at staffing across ambulatory clinics and can make adjustments um, based off of um, the number of providers working in one clinic versus another one. So we can we do that throughout the course of the year as needed. Um, in addition, if it's like a larger, like we have um, a need for a new provider or a new staff to support a new provider, um, when we submit the position or the request for kind of a new position um, in our um, budgeting system, we can submit kind of the rationale um, and with the request, and it goes to a committee for review, discussion, and a decision. So there is the opportunity to request new FTE when needed, um, and then it's you know it's weighed across. Is weighed by you know some executives that sit on that committee. Okay. Did we meet our goals last year? I don't remember. Heather, do you remember? Or did we go over in any particular area? So there are a variety of goals that we set for the homeless health center. Some of them are specific to the mobile health clinic, in which case we had goals related to the number of visits we would have out of the mobile health clinic. And no, we, we, were, de we were definitely under due to COVID and we made yeah. program changes along the way. Um, we do have some, you know, each year we've done the BPR or the budget where we're projecting, just like this year, projecting that it's likely to be this number of patients and it's likely to be this number of visits and we're usually pretty close to that but we don't um, we don't utilize it as a goal okay so it's, it's, it's not as if we we would be noticing if we're significantly either below or above that right. target number and we'd probably be looking at whether or not we're falling within taking up more percentage of the ambulatory care so for example this year when we did the calculation it shows that the homeless health center with 5.6% of the whole ambulatory services. Um, and in, in other years, it's been either more or less than that percentage. And so we would be looking at that and probably trying to understand why that is or seeing if, if the number of visits overall in ambulatory went up significantly because of access to video visits and telephone visits and things like that. So we would be looking at that and reporting it. Um, so that, then, was taken in, that was taken into consideration then? Yeah, so we, we used fiscal year 21. What actually happened in 21 to set the 2022 mm -hmm. projection. And again, right. um, remember that for the, for the federal grant, it's a calendar year. So it starts January 1st, 2022, and it goes calendar year. And then our fiscal budget at Alameda Health System is a fiscal year, and it starts um, July 1st to June 30th. And so right. you know, that causes some reporting to be a little different as well. Right. Okay. Thank you. Um, and I don't know if I missed this, but to you talk about why why there um, why there's such a gap between um, you know our projected income and then what is actually the the expense. Um, 
you know, it gets supplemented through like federal, state, local, other. Um, but um, is it is there like non-billable visits or like what are what's happening that is creating that expense that isn't billable? Yeah. So, um, Heather, do you want to go back to that, or uh, is it Brenda that's controlling the um, the screen? I think it's page sixteen or so. So what Lucia is referring to is the proportion of our revenue that comes from um, billing for visits, which, um, as Catherine said, theoretically within a federally qualified health center covers all of your allowable costs. Um, so here, yeah, this, this section. So you can see that. Yeah. 14. Yeah, that about $3.8 million out of our $9.8 million budget as a health center is billing. In a typical health center across the country, this is closer to about 70% of the budget that comes from billing. Um, and I don't know the answer based on data, but I, I'm pretty sure that what Catherine said is right. We have some work to do to ensure that all of our allowable costs have been included in our rate. Um, so the way that the, the way that the costs get included in in your revenue is um, the state comes and looks at your budget for a whole year and says, how many visits did you see? And what were your allowable costs to see those visits? So let's say you, you know, spent $100,000 and you had 1,000 visits, then you would get $100 per visit going forward because that theoretically would cover all your costs in the future, right? So we can just pay you on a per visit basis but we expect that if we pay you on a per visit basis, that will cover your costs. And that's the way that federal statute has set up that federally qualified health centers are supposed to work and supposed to be able to fund care for the uninsured and care for people in the community um, outside of even, even people who are on Medicaid. Um, and in our case, you can see we're, we're well below sort of that 70% benchmark for health centers across the country. And I think partly it is that we, we haven't set our rates Again, I haven't reviewed this data in detail, but I think partly it is that we haven't set our rates to cover our to cover as many of our costs as they could have in that process with the state. And I think we are interested in figuring out how to do how to do that going forward. I think a second potential reason is that um, many public health centers like ours that are part of government entities rely on, a lot on supplemental funding. We just have more costs than your typical nonprofit community health center. You know, that's that's a small or small nonprofit organization. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of those costs come with managing public sector governance, having unionized workforces, things like that. And so I think it probably is more common that we have more supplemental funding within all the public health centers, you know, San Francisco, Contra Costa, San Mateo that are that are like ours. That's, again, speculation. I don't I, I haven't seen the data. I don't know the answers, but I think those are my, my two best guesses about that. Well, same, and I will just add that we have seen some information from our, you know, in our new governance structure projections from HMA, where they talk about what are our options as a health system and what does it look like for um, for public systems and how they're governed and how they're paid for. So, if you want to refer to that, those HMA reports again, you may see some evidence there as well. Where does health pack come in under the payer category? That's in local government. 
Um, and just, sorry, a lot of questions. Um, how much input, um, like who helps build this budget? Is it like Damon and Heather, are you part of these meetings? Do you, kind of, how, how does this get decided? You have um, with you, most of the staff were involved in this. Um, so it's definitely Heather and myself. And then Elzaba is our main contact with access to the financial data. And she's supported by Grace, who's also on the call here today. Um, so we've gotten really, really good support from uh, the system to produce this. I think what's required from me and Heather is a lot of analyzing the regulations and trying to translate them to like, what does that mean in Alameda Health System when it says, <laughs> you know, this kind of a position or, you know, count this, but don't count that. Um, and then, you know, of course, I think on the, on the AHS side, um, there's quite a lot of, of uh, you know, complexity in just how we manage our budget too, that I, I think we rely on Elzebub and Grace and their team to both structure the data and then, and then to be able to report it out. Elzebub, do you have any other, you know, comments yeah, on that? Only, understand? The only thing I would like to add is that going forward, there's a big focus on creating a financial that is based, uh, that's entity specific. So we're getting, we are aspiring to be and wanting to get better at reporting by, for example, we will have much more transparency as to what exactly constitutes all the costs and um, costs and revenues associated with FQs. So I would, I would guess that next year our numbers will be even firmer and much more robust than they are even this year. So I think we are progressing towards wanting to make things much more um, transparent, much more specific to campus and entity. So I, I think better numbers are coming. Um, I have a question. Uh, this is Mark again. Um, I'm just curious, um, what if any efforts are have been made, are being made, or uh, if they're not being made, should be made uh, regarding um, um, any kind of aggressive effort to basically, um, for patients who come in, who have absolute homeless patients, I'm speaking of, that come into the um, health care for the homeless uh, center, um, what efforts are being made uh, for those who actually don't have any medical coverage whatsoever of any kind, Medi-Cal or other, um, is, there any, um, uh, is there any effort to basically try to actually um, find out uh, who they are and to basically try to help those individuals actually uh, actually uh, acquire some form of coverage, whether it be state, local, uh, or county, uh, in order to assuage uh, overall general costs um, of the program itself. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for your question. Um, yeah, so within our system, we have eligibility specialists, and any person who comes within the system who has no coverage um, be they someone experiencing homelessness or not, um, they would be uh, scheduled a financial um, and a, a financial appointment. Certainly through the mobile health center, we're scheduling patients for financial appointments frequently to help to help their coverage be realized um, through providing the documentation that's needed to enroll them in those programs. Um, frequently, we're checking eligibility for any patient that comes in. Frequently, patients have some um, coverage that they they don't always uh, know that they have, so aren't always aware of, um, and we're able to find that based on the information that we get from patients. And this is happening throughout our system, not just within our homeless health center, but throughout Alameda Health System, so it includes inpatient um, services as well. There's a whole team that, that manages that, as well as managing um, 
I'm going to call it the self-pay report. This is typically where you see um, patients who have no coverage um, will fall into that report, and there's a whole team of people that are working with those folks to help get that covered. Okay. All right. I, I did notice. I did. I do see that now here um, on page 14. Um, the, uh, I guess my other follow-up questions. Seeing the breakdown here, uh, real quickly, I was just I was just curious about. Um, I noticed that um, one of the one of the categories um, of which of which we're speaking um, is marked uh, uh, item number four as private. Um, Am, am I to understand that there uh, that there might have been homeless people who actually already have private coverage? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, I wasn't aware of that. Yep. It's not a large number. You can see, I think it's 23 or so. Oh yeah, it's really small. Yeah, I can definitely yeah. think of like two or three I know personally. So I'm I'm almost wondering if the number is too small. Um, when you say when you say too small, do you mean in what way that is 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 not um, it's not adequately reported, maybe? No, just unfortunately, I think it's more common than we think for people with private insurance to actually be experiencing homelessness, particularly when you include, you know, people who are doubled up. Um, you know, I've talked on the phone doing the COVID um, referrals this year to isolation and quarantine. I've talked on the phone to many people living in their cars, working one or two jobs um, who have employer, employer, you know, sponsored private insurance. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. I've seen it be really common also with um, younger folks, like in their 20s, early 20s, they're covered through their parents' insurance. Um, and mm -hmm. They may or may not know that they are being covered unless you look for it. Um, actually, that, that actually uh, brings up uh, one other question. Um, um, I do know from uh, past experience, um, that uh, especially where I live, uh, you see a lot of it is uh, there's a lot of uh, young uh, young people, uh, displaced people, uh, young people, uh, mainly teenagers. Um, but of course, um, a lot of them don't know they're possibly on their parents' um, insurance because they're no longer talking to their parents. Uh, and I'm just wondering. Um, um, is the number is the number um, that we we're just speaking of, of of people who might have private insurance or, or do not? Um, I mean, how do we know how many uh, people say under the age of uh, homeless? Let's say homeless youth. Uh, I would imagine we do serve some level number level of uh, number of homeless youth uh, in our program. Uh, would you happen to? Would, would, would you happen from your experience to know whether or not um, any of them uh, any of them actually make up part of that number of, of uh, being on parents insurance or not or maybe not knowing or not having uh, any idea chairperson Smith I, I appreciate the line of questioning but I think it's gone beyond the scope of the agenda item so I okay. want to I'm sorry no, 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 no problem at all. I just want to direct us back to approving the budget and keeping the questions in line with that. So I think that there are any questions pertaining specifically to the budget before us um, would be 
for an intensor here. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. So we'll take a vote now. Um, where are we on? We're on D, correct? Um, Lorette, Madam Chair, before D. we take a vote, um, I, we might want to check if there are any last questions, and then okay. we also need to make a motion. Okay. Anybody have anything else? Um, yeah, only one question. Once we once we uh, once we pass a vote on this, uh, where does it actually go to next? Thanks, Mark. Um, this would be then considered your your annual budget for the calendar year 2022. Okay. You may you may be able to leverage this information in our strategic planning sessions that are coming up, but it becomes a reference. It becomes a reference for you to use in your planning. And yeah, just in connection with that, we can decide whether we want this document or another version of reporting to really be the way that we try to monitor uh, financial management of the homeless health center. So that I think that is something that we will we will have a chance to decide through our strategic planning process as a co-applicant board. And then this budget again begins in January. So if we want to monitor against this budget, that's one way we could go, or we could try to tie ourselves more closely to how ambulatory monitors, or we can try to do something as a as a hybrid. Um, but as, as Heather said, this is this will be a reference no matter what, and it could become more than that should you all choose uh, choose for it to be, you know, the, the document that we monitor from. Okay. Okay. Kayla, now I make a motion to approve it, correct? Uh, yes. Please. Thank you. Okay. Um, I move to make a motion to approve the 2022 budget of uh, the Homeless Healthcare Center. Um, I'll second, Eric. All right, okay. Neha, yay or nay?
the the COVID response in particular, and you know, both the hotels, what we're doing around outside in the community. I think I first met Carrie at the homeless count in 2017. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's like unfailing. It's like I'm on a rhythm here with the light. Um, and uh, you know, she just has a really long experience in homelessness. Has a lot of experience here in Alameda County. I think we're really um, fortunate to have uh, her in this role, and and this is part of our um, goal of, through our strategic planning process, just making sure that we have really critical partners like the Office of Homeless uh, Care and Coordination um, coming to present to you all, so you all are aware of what's what's happening around us that we need to be partnering up with in order to in order to be effective in our strategy over the next two years. So thanks so much, Carrie, for sitting through our you know lengthy budget conversation too. <laughs> Um, and, and take it away. Uh, elucidating. It actually was really helpful to uh, see how your budget comes together because um, that process is newer to me. So thank you for the introduction, Damon. And I, I want to say it was probably actually 2015 when we were working on the homeless together. Um, so yeah, it's been a little while. Um, and it's, uh, you know, always a pleasure to work with you, and I'm excited to meet others here and see uh, some of you again. Um, so I will try to go through relatively quickly and then give people a chance to weigh in, give me uh, feedback, uh, ask me questions. Um, I want to make sure and focus on what's actually uh, interesting and informative to everyone. Um, so I can actually uh, go to, I'm not sure who's controlling the slides, but thank you, Brenda. Um, yeah. We can go to the next one. I'm going to start out talking about Home Together 2026, which is the strategic planning process that we're working on, and then I'll give some general program updates about the Office of Homeless Care and Coordination, and then I will end with just a little bit of information about what we're working on next. Um, so the next slide is on background. Um, so, as Damon said, it's a pretty new office. We actually formed in December of 2019. Um, so, I was around for a whole uh, three and a half months before the pandemic. Um, and I, yeah, I like to joke that I came to work on a new office coordinating homelessness assistance, and I ended up running um, nine leased hotel sites, <laughs> which is not yeah. exactly what I was expecting. Um, we, at, at the time that I started, we were working with Everyone Home, the county agencies, and the different cities on uh, what they call systems modeling. So figuring out kind of the needs analysis for the homeless population in Alameda County. And as you would expect, um, we very quickly pivoted in that analysis to look at all of our systems modeling, all of our needs analysis, through a racial equity lens, because what we saw was that the inflow into homelessness is so vastly disproportionate, um, mostly African-American uh, disproportionality, also Native Americans become homeless disproportionately. And we realized that without addressing some of the uh, systemic causes for that disproportionate outcome in homelessness that we wouldn't be addressing homelessness in this county. And so the systems modeling report really, we retitled it, it's Racial Equity and Homeless System Design. Mm -hmm. That was finally finished in January of this year. 
and we're now working on an implementation plan for how to take that needs analysis and roll it out with all of our programs and systems. The next one. So this is a picture of the, of the report, and I'm happy to make sure that everyone has a link to it if you haven't seen it yet. Um, this uh, Centering Racial Equity um, and Systems Modeling examines the role of structural racism in perpetuating racial and ethnic disparities in the homeless population, and then recommended a model for the crisis and housing inventory that would be responsive to Alameda County's specific homeless population, instead of sort of taking the national model or the San Francisco model and saying, oh, we just have to do it like this, really looking at why people end up homeless in Alameda County and trying to address that more directly. The next slide is on the findings. Um, so uh, the, some of the findings were the overrepresentation of people of color who are homeless reflects long-term structural racism across multiple systems. And, you know, we're talking about criminal justice and education and, of course, housing and zoning laws that lots of people have been talking about. Um, that the current system doesn't have the interventions needed to permanently rehouse people experiencing homelessness. And what that means to us is that we have some, we certainly house a lot of people. We'll house a couple of thousand people every year, um, but we're not housing everyone proportionately, and we also have more inflow than we have outflow from our system. The greatest areas where we had gaps were for flexible subsidies, permanent supportive housing, and dedicated affordable housing. And I'll talk a little bit more about what dedicated affordable means in a second. Um, we concluded that right-sizing resources would generate better flow through our system. So in, in other words, as long as we don't have exits from shelter, we will have a bottleneck in shelter, right? And as long as we are not investing adequately in prevention, we will continue to have more inflow than we have outflow. So really kind of focusing on that systems flow is what we're trying to do in the implementation planning. Um, and then finally, reducing disparities requires adding new programs to the system, increasing program availability, and improving our design and delivery. So the next slide is um, kind of what the resources, oh, this is the systems flow side. Sorry, I edited. <laughs> Um, this is what system flow looks like. I don't love this slide very much, but it shows what we're working on with our regional partners, which are all home, looking at for every one resource for shelter, like every shelter resource, we need um, two housing solutions and four prevention solutions. They call it one, two, four. In Alameda County, what our needs analysis uh, concluded was it looks like more like one four four. So for every shelter bed, we actually need four housing exits and four prevention solutions because it's a different housing market than Santa Clara and San Francisco County, um, and because we're really uh, under resourced on permanent supportive housing more than some of those other communities. Next one. So the next couple of slides are the types of resources we need. The first one is on the front door, uh, what we call the front door. So this is for people who are about to become homeless or people who have just become homeless. 
We need homelessness prevention and rapid resolution. By rapid resolution, we need to find something that can help someone get back to the last place where they could stay safely. Um, and then homelessness prevention, that's, you know, typically we see this as rental assistance, season of sharing. Some people are able to access it once in a lifetime. Um, but we know that that needs to be more flexible. We know that usually if someone becomes homeless and is seeking shelter, usually the last place they were in wasn't where they had their own lease. Usually the last place they were in was staying with friends or family. And, and if we can help them go maintain that Space without having the requirement of a lease in order to get rental assistance, then we can provide prevention to more households. Then uh, we need emergency and interim housing. The first version of the needs analysis did not show how many shelter beds we need because the idea was people will be able to move directly from unsheltered encampment situations into housing. What we see, though, is that Housing takes a while, right? And what happens is that people end up outside too long. That has tremendous health impacts, and it makes it harder for people to move into housing. It's much harder to get your documents together if you don't have a place to put your documents that's safe. I mean, pretty pretty um, intuitive, I think, to most of us. And we've been able to see this play out with the uh, hotel program with safer ground, where we have people in a place where they have the space and, and um, safety and time to put together those documents, to work with the service providers, to work with their housing navigator, to figure out where they want to live and to see an apartment and then to move. If they try to do all of that from an unsheltered situation, it is much, much more difficult. So we've seen typically in a system of care, you'll see 25 to 35% of people move from shelter into housing uh, when they exit. In the hotels, we've seen 70% move into housing when they exit the hotels. Just a huge, huge difference. And we've doubled the number of people who've moved into housing from shelter in 2020 over 2019. So pretty exciting uh, development. We also think that we need transitional housing, primarily for people who have a temporary problem. Um, and that could be transitioning youth who have just emancipated from foster care or, you know, transitioning youth who have just, like, fallen out with their parents. Like, I think Mark was suggesting um, we have people who need a few months or up to a couple of years to kind of establish what they need to have independent housing in the community. And then we have uh, other folks who are going to have ongoing economic needs and transitional housing isn't going to work for them. Uh, having a time-limited assistance program for someone on a fixed income is not going to be effective. We're going to see people drop out of that otherwise. And then respite, um, something probably uh, folks on this call are familiar with and something that Healthcare Services Agency has been uh, working on building up over the last couple of years. Um, we've been approaching this from a more flexible uh, standpoint, I think, than um, than traditional medical respite. Uh, I was talking, I, I imagine many of you know Lucy who oversees the healthcare for the homeless program. Um, and I was talking to her about referrals into respite and, you know, about 
how different some of the medical needs can be for a temporary place to stay than you might see within the hospital. Um, sometimes we need to be able to provide medical respite for someone who cannot medically be in a shelter situation but really needs to come off the street. Um, so those are the things that we're thinking about at the front door. And then the next slide, it should be on housing resources. So some of the housing resources that are proposed in the strategic plan are um, shallow subsidies. And this is for, again, like the person on a fixed income who doesn't have enough money to pay rent but could stay where they are if we could provide an ongoing shallow subsidy. And we're talking about somewhere between four and $800 a month that can help keep someone stable. If you compare that with the cost of shelter, with the, with the cost of a hospital bed, it's just remarkably low and something we really want to encourage deploying. Um, and actually the city of Oakland is already piloting a shallow subsidy program uh, with Keep Oakland Housed and using their emergency rental assistance funding um, and working with UCSF to study how that pilot goes. And so doing that, people are still eligible for the emergency rental assistance and they can have the shallow subsidy on top. And there's the control group and the researchers working on it. So we're really excited to see um, what comes from that uh, that we can learn from. And then rapid rehousing. Uh, is probably the, has been the largest pot of resources in Alameda County. That's usually time limited and uh, the average length of stay is about a year and that's really to support move-in costs, short-term subsidy and some services. Something that we're seeing is that people are not increasing their income enough over the course of a year or even 24 months to always graduate from rapid rehousing to being able to pay their own rent. So we're looking at how we can provide a backstop to that for people who've been able to increase their income, but not to the level the fair market rents require in this county because they are so outsized compared with people at the entry level in the job market. Um, then permanent supportive housing, of course, is um, Typically site-based, but not always. So typically there's a building that has a mix of affordable and supportive housing, and you have uh, support services on site. And you may have some medical care on site or rotating through, and um, you would have uh, deeply subsidized rent. We have uh, about 3,000 permanent supportive housing uh, subsidized units in the county right now, and our systems modeling recommended another 4,400 um, new permanent supportive housing units. And then dedicated affordable housing, what we're talking about here is making housing that's prioritized for homeless people deeply affordable for people who are under 30% of area median income. So that if you're in a, a scattered site in private market unit or, or if you're in an affordable housing site, we should be providing a subsidy to allow you to be able to afford the rent. And a lot of people don't need a more intensive resource than this. A lot of people who become homeless in Alameda County can take that dedicated affordable subsidy and never come back into the homelessness system of care. Some people would need some services. 
Some people would need very few. And then some people we might end up saying, oh, this person is a better fit for permanent supportive housing or this person now needs more care. But we don't start with the assumption that everybody needs exactly the same model. Next one. So the Home Together 2026 planning process, building on that systems modeling, um, the Home Together plan would take stock of our current resources. So we're looking at what has changed since the systems modeling got done in 2019. Um, and it's a fair bit. You know, we have, we have some different assumptions. We've bought a bunch of hotels um, in the county. Uh, we bought two uh, with the county resources and the city of Oakland sponsored several projects um, where they bought Clifton Hall and, and at Temescal. So we've added a fair bit of supportive housing. A lot of the major A1 uh, funds, the housing bonds that's administered through community development, a lot of those units are now coming online in um, the second half of this year. There are six buildings coming online with new supportive housing. So that's a pretty exciting moment. Um, and we have some new uh, sheltering resources, uh, new navigation centers opening in the county. So we'll readjust the systems modeling. We're going to add assumptions and strategies from that system flow work that's been done on the regional level. Um, and then a bunch of the new state funding that just got announced um, in the last month is going to depend on having a plan, a, a homelessness plan that meets the state requirements. And so we're going to ensure that the Home Together 2026 plan already checks those boxes to make sure that we're eligible for the new state funding and the new state funding incentives. Um, in addition to the flexible homeless money, there's also this home and community-based services money coming from the state that requires that um, the county and COC work with the health plans um, and have a shared plan around homelessness. So that's pretty exciting to me, uh, making sure we're all at the same table. And then um, operationalizing the recommendations from the Centering Race Equity and Homeless System Design Report. That seems pretty straightforward, and that's the implementation part of it. Next one. So these are the big areas of focus. Um, and given what we discussed in terms of inflow and the types of housing, these are not surprising. Um, the first goal is to prevent disproportionate inflow. Um, and this has a lot to do with targeting prevention services. Um, and then connecting people to needed resources. This is a place where we want to focus on some of our mainstream resources and make sure that people aren't being discharged into homelessness. We want to strengthen our neighborhood-based services where people are most likely to lose their housing. We've recently opened access point services to cover West Oakland, um, where there wasn't anything in that area before. We're about to add another access point in East Oakland to really try to um, increase our coverage in terms of uh, meeting needs in places where people lose their housing most often. And then trying to lower programmatic barriers to crisis services. We don't want to tell someone who's just become homeless, um, who may be in a really tough place, that they're somehow not eligible. We want to tell them what we have that they can access. Um, and then increasing housing availability, of course. Again, we need about 4,400 additional housing units. 
um, but also making the housing really responsive to the needs of people who are homeless in this county. And then one of our big goals, and this is one of the reasons our office was formed, is to improve the communication and coordination across all of our different systems to make sure that we are serving people seamlessly and that we are building on each other's resources. Next slide. So some of the things uh, that we've updated in the Office of Homeless Care and Coordination. Um, one really exciting project that seems like it took forever is on the next slide. And this is the uh, Fairmont Tiny Homes Navigation Center. It, believe it or not, opened today. <laughs> uh, it's been in progress the whole time I've been in this job. It has, uh, it has just taken way too long, but uh, we were originally going to build a like modular navigation center in a single dorm, and um, that seemed like a bad idea. <laughs> um, as the pandemic came on us, we uh, we really just felt like we needed to pivot, and in doing that, it costs a little more, but um, but it also has created a site that is pretty inspiring. Um, people have really their own space and the units are lovely inside. Um, it's a really, it's a charming little community. There's, you know, services space and the laundry room and outdoor space. And each of the units has a mini kitchen and its own bathroom. And we're just, we're delighted to be able to bring people into such a welcoming space. Um, so there are 34 units, 15 of them are set aside for medical respite. And so obviously we'll be partnering really closely with Healthcare for the Homeless on those medical respite referrals. Uh, it's a non-congregate setting, but we do provide meals and people also have their own cooking uh, uh, facilities. Um, and we have the laundry and kitchenettes on site. So the units that are not medical respite are navigation center units. And what that means to us is that you have uh, 90 days to engage and there's a housing navigator on site. And as long as you're working on a housing plan with a housing navigator, we can extend the stay at the navigation center. We don't want to discharge people to homelessness. Um, and similarly, people in the medical respite unit, if they uh, wish to engage and convert to a navigation center unit, then we will also have them working with the housing navigator um, and support services so that we can assist people who come in through medical respite to exit into permanent housing. Next one. So... Talked a little bit about the hotels. We got some good news from the state this week. We have some additional funding to keep the hotels open that we still have open. We had bad news this week that our uh, COVID cases exceeded our capacity um, where we had isolation quarantine. And so we, the, um, since I sent this uh, slideshow <laughs> to you all, uh, this has changed a little bit. The inn by the Coliseum is now converted back to isolation quarantine. We're not able to use that as a safer ground site, um, but we are now proposing to the board, and I've got to put the board letter together and everything else, but um, 
I gave them a heads up that we're going to come back and propose to keep the Radisson open through at least January and hopefully February and uh, to keep all of the hotels open through January. Um, so to give us some more time to move people into housing and what we hope is that it'll provide us a bridge to additional home key units that would come available. There's going to be, so home key being the state funding to purchase buildings, the two on the bottom of this slide, the Oak Days and Comfort, are the two that the county purchased previously, and there will be a new round of that funding where we could purchase additional sites or the city's pen coming out, we believe, in September. Um, so we're now pretty hopeful that we uh, that we won't have to just transition completely out of the non-congregate sheltering model um, that has that has brought us so much success in housing. Next one. So this is uh, and this has also changed since uh, <laughs> since I sent this, but this is the overview of who we serve in the non-congregate shelters. And these are the ones that were set aside for people who were at high risk of complications if they should get COVID. So these are the um, shelter-in-place hotels as opposed to the isolation quarantine. So we served over 2,000 people um, since last March. And of those, uh, 1,285 had exited. And of those, 888 had exited the housing. Um, and so that's where we're seeing that, you know, 69, 70% are exiting to permanent housing. Um, of, of the people still in safer ground, about 142 of them are um, in comfort or oak days. So they won't have to exit. Um, so even though we haven't converted those sites to permanent supportive housing yet, that we've targeted people to move in there who would be going to permanent supportive housing who are really highly prioritized. And then um, I wanted on the next slide to just show kind of what the Office of Homeless Care and Coordination looks like at the moment. Um, so the office reports to the Director of the Healthcare Services Agency, and this is the sort of functional org chart. So on the left here, you see we have a policy and planning section. Um, that includes finance and procurement and contract management, so it's really a lot of admin, but we do have a policy and planning director, um, and she actually used to work for Healthcare for the Homeless, that's Suzanne Warner, um, and so she's overseeing our data and performance and budget and finance and policy communications and contracts work. We have a coordinated entry division. So that's where we're overseeing home stretch, where people are prioritized for permanent supportive housing, but we're also now overseeing as management entity for the uh, county, we oversee the Housing Resource Center's coordinated entry access points. And uh, that division also oversees all of the housing navigation services. So the people assisting people from shelter or hotel or from the street to move toward uh, housing or move toward shelter. Then we have the Housing Services Division, and that division oversees clinical services and case management in permanent supportive housing, oversees um, some of the interim and bridge housing services, and program operations. And eventually, that next uh, box, Room Key, Home Key, 
would move under housing services. It's been such a wild uh, ride over the last year and a half that that position reports to me. And we have kind of a mini team of borrowed people from Alameda County Care Connect and other parts of the world um, where we're just kind of putting together uh, the team to keep the hotels going. Um, and then we're in the process of merging with Healthcare for the Homeless um, with a timeline for merging by January of 2022. And so we've been talking to the Healthcare for the Homeless Program um, Board and Community Advisory Board and the Alameda County Care Connect and the Office of Homeless Care and Coordination Board, um, but uh, making progress in how that'll come together. Our goal is really to, to work on um, the coordination and consolidation. We're planning on expanding. Um, we're adding new positions to build out more within Healthcare for the Homeless and OHCC um, to support especially the um, regional coordinator work uh, that we've been doing with coordinated entry and with the street health outreach teams and um, with shelter health. Next one. So some of the changes in store. Um, so the, we talked about merging with healthcare for the homeless. Uh, we're also migrating over some of the homelessness work that was traditionally held in the Housing and Community Development Department under the Community Development Agency. Adding new positions for programs and infrastructure. We have um, the state budget expansions in Room Key and the um, HAP programs. So that's the state kind of general funding program for homeless response. Uh, we've expanded the permanent supportive housing pipeline. We now have almost 1,400 units in the pipeline uh, for, for new housing. And working on those new program models, we've been talking about the dedicated affordable, the shallow subsidy. And uh, we are supporting new navigation centers and respite programs throughout the county in addition to the Fairmont Tiny Homes. And I think the next one's the last one. That, oh, no, second to the last. So added funding for and new programs. Um, so since 2020, we've taken on administering the state-funded homeless housing assistance and prevention program. And that has ranged from eight to eight to $20 million a year. And it's used for uh, shelter. We're funding some of the street health teams with this. Um, we use this for the access points. Um, we're supporting several of the uh, jurisdictions with their navigation centers and so on. Uh, we took on the lead role as management entity for coordinated entry. Uh, we're now coordinating the services for future homeless housing units in the pipeline, uh, administering Project Room Key and the Room Key Housing Transitions Program and the Home Key Services. And then the final one should be the what's next. So uh, again, we'll have new home key projects in 2021-2022. Uh, we think there will be several rounds and lots of opportunities for jurisdictions and providers to get involved. We have several no place like home properties leasing up, so for people with serious mental illness who are homeless. Uh, adding new access points for coordinated entry, including an access point for veterans and access points for transition age youth. 
uh, the Fairmont Tiny Homes. Uh, we're deploying currently 865 emergency housing vouchers in collaboration with four housing authorities across the county um, for people who are in temporary subsidies or people who are exiting the hotels. They're also set aside for transitional youth and people fleeing violence. Um, and then working on the merging of program. I think that's it. So happy to answer any questions or get out of your way. Loretta, you're on mute. I, I see you talking. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, I do. Thank you, Terry, for that presentation. Um, the Fairmont Tiny Homes, was that um, subsidized by the city of San Leandro? Or was that state funds for that? Or how, how did those come about? You know, like with most, um, with most housing and shelter projects, it's a, a wild mix of funding sources. So um, there's many that came from the uh, boomerang funds. So the former redevelopment funding um, was some of it was set aside for capital projects, and that gets administered through HCD. And then there's also funding um, from CARES. So for you know COVID relief funding that the county mm -hmm. could administer. Um, and we had some funding through whole person care for capital costs for respite that was incentive based. And then the operating funding would be a mix of um, the first year funded through the boomerang funding. So there's part of the boomerang funding is set aside for the unincorporated area, um, okay. which the Fairmont campus is on. Um, and then ongoing, we have money set aside through HAP, through the, um, the house, Homeless Housing Assistance and Prevention Program uh, to, for all. Okay. I think you froze. Hopefully she can. I hope. 
that the Fairmont tiny homes, they look beautiful just from what she showed us. But um, I also know that um, in the other tiny home projects that are throughout the area, um, they don't have kitchens and um, showers. And the reason for that, is she back? Oh, there, there it is. The reason that, that um, Wi-Fi died. Oh, okay. Uh, so I think uh, I think we probably can can maybe co collect some questions for her and send them via okay. email. Okay. Uh, yeah. And then uh, we'll um, we'll we can probably move on. I'll just text her that that's where I do it. Yeah. Can you can you email us yeah. your address? Okay. Great. Um, anyway, what I was saying about the tiny houses not having kitchens and bathrooms, um, one thought was that they wanted to get these people out of the homes to come together as, um, you know, for social interaction. And um, if they had their kitchen and their own bath, they possibly would not do that, you know. And social interaction is very important. You know, a lot of them have a, a lot of problems with that. So I, I wanted to ask her about that. And a few other things. <laughs> okay. Uh, this Eric, I just had one question, and maybe she covered it. I missed it. Going back to the resources would need the front door section. It was the third one where I guess they try to help uh, prolong a person's relationship with their family to stay there a little longer. And oh, I was yeah. wondering, is that just through the a counseling process or is there any financial aid to assist the families with this mm -hmm. uh with the person that's mm -hmm. about to be displaced or uh, i'm just wondering what what kind of assistance does, does that entail I, I heard her emphasize that previously a lot of that funding was restricted to people with leases and that now it will go to people who may not have leases. Um, so I, I take that to mean that, you know, it's really, they're really trying to make financial resources available to folks who are, who are with family. But that's a question that we can forward to her as well, Eric. You know, I thought I heard that. I wasn't sure. I, so. Yeah. Um, do you know, Damon, if the housing vouchers that they're giving out now are they under Section 8 where the homeless would have to actually go and find um, an apartment that Section 8 would, uh, the, you know, renter would, the owner would take? Or is it uh, something different? I don't know. We'll have to ask her um, okay. in, in follow-up for some of those detailed questions. And I think okay. one of the things I've requested, if, if you all are interested, and it, it seems like just with the volume of questions you are, is that on something like a quarterly basis, we have you know, um, Carrie or someone from her staff come and give us updates about what's happening. I mean, I think you can see, you know, that that office is going to actually supervise the people who hold our contract. Um, so Lucy will report to Carrie. Um, and, you know, all the parts of HCD that, you know, currently implement the homelessness system of care are going to move under Carrie to a different agency, a healthcare services agency. So. I just would emphasize the sort of magnitude of this change and the way our system's designed and the importance of this new office for us around homelessness. And so right. I think if you guys, it, it seems like it, but if, if you all want, I think one thing we can do is try to have them come back and give fairly regular updates here. Do you, are, 
are we going to be visiting that site? I mean, I know the, the mobile health that is parked over by Fairmont quite a bit anyway, but um, is that one of the places we're going to to take the mobile health down to, to the tiny home village? Heather, have you talked to um, Healthcare for the Homeless about that at all? Um, that has not been proposed at this point, so I don't know whether or not that will get added to our calendar. Okay. I, I think it's, I don't know what the thought process was, why they decided to build it close to Fairmont, but I can definitely see um, why that would be a good decision, especially when um, the mental health can be addressed, you know, in uh, some ways up there. But uh, lots of questions anyway. <laughs>
chart on the next page and you can see those numbers, how they're changing. Thank you so much, Brenda. Um, so you'll see how they were dip, dip, dipping there through April. And now we're headed back up. Um, now that yeah. we have stopped our, uh, our vaccine efforts, remember we were really focused on vaccines for a couple of months, and now we're getting back to um, regular care. Uh, and also what has happened is that Wanda Johnson, our nurse practitioner on Mobile Health Clinic, is now also practicing at Eastmont one day a week. Um, I did uh, include in our report her visits in her clinic um, at Eastmont, which is she had 32 appointments, 24 of which were kept, which is a really amazing, so um, good. amazing no-show rate. Um, I will also add, though, that these are patients experiencing homelessness that were referred from mobile health, but also include patients from Eastmont Wellness Center in general who needed care. And so they're not necessarily all um, patients who are part of the homeless health registry. And so we'll be digging a little bit more into that data. What we really want to um, see and what we're working towards is understanding how this change will impact a patient's follow-up care in clinic with their primary care provider after being seen on mobile. And you may remember from our RBA metrics that our return rate after 30 days is reasonably low, um, roughly between 17 and 20% return rate to our 30-day after visit, and we're looking for a much higher return rate. And so we're hoping that both the dental and Wanda's practice at Eastmont is gonna help that return rate. Um, one of our- Can I just share an anecdote? Yeah. So, so Wanda saw someone who, um, Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is ridiculous at this point. It's like yeah, literally, yeah. like it's waiting for me to talk. Um, I used to work in an office like that too. <laughs> so she saw someone who um, is HIV positive, which means in our system, they're supposed to, their next visit's really supposed to be with us in at, um, at AIC um, mm -hmm. here at, at Highland, but they scheduled the patient back both with me and with Wanda. Patient missed the visit with me. Oh. Made the visit the next day with Wanda, which totally, you know, reinforces, you know, it's one anecdote, but our hypothesis that just seeing the same person really matters. Then, um, then I was sitting here in clinic today, and my medical assistant, you know, called the patient, and he said, "I'll come see you, whatever Doctor Wanda says." <laughs> so I think this idea of like establishing the relationship in the mobile context, but really bridging it to the primary care context—that's like aside from the data, I'm also just already feeling that it's kind of working, you know. So Thank far, but it's wonderful that what you've presented so far. I think it's fabulous. It's exciting. It really Very is exciting. exciting. Um, we're definitely excited about it as well. I think the team is energized um, from this change. You know, I'll say some change is hard and some change is really energizing. And I feel like these changes mm -hmm. that happen and our team are really energizing and represent um, changes that they wanted to see and that they were helping to create and that they're helping to implement. Um, following up on the mobile health specific, um, just uh, we're still working on those self-pay reports for patients experiencing homelessness. Um, it's just, it continues to be delayed. It's a very difficult uh, report to create. Um, we did make a change. We were working on helping the, the patient, uh, patient services representatives being able to see that a patient is part of the homeless um, registry. And so that uh, has happened. Uh, PSRs, the patient services representatives, can now see that the patient is part of the homeless registry. And this is important because there's a specific data that needs to be completed for every patient in the homeless registry for our HRSA requirements and for our UDS reports, right. which is one of those patients. 
needs to have a financial case. And when the DSRs don't know whether or not the patient is part of the homeless registry, they're not reminded then to do that financial case. And remember, the homeless registry is not only about whether or not the patient um, proclaimed to the PSR whether or not they were experiencing homelessness. And so if, if the patient is not choosing to disclose that to a PSR, the PSR won't know and then wouldn't know to do the financial case. Um, the, the registry is built off of address, so patients experiencing homelessness that have addresses, including at the motels, um, have a homeless address, have been diagnosed by home, uh, as homeless by one of their providers. Any one of those things can, can put them into the homeless registry, um, and this could be something that would have otherwise been skipped by a PSR because they didn't disclose to the PSR what their homeless status was. So this will help us to um, get the data into our system correctly and um, compliantly for our system. We're really excited about that. Um, down in leadership and advocacy, much of this is the same in a repeat from previous months, so it's a reminder, but I will add on at the end, there is a link where you can read a report that was written by our, in collaboration with others, but our favorite doctor who wrote part of this report is Dr. David Francis, so feel free <laughs> to, click, to click that report and, and learn more about applying lessons from behavioral health integration to social care integration in primary care. Um, and uh, so there is a link there for y'all. And thank you so much. That's the end of my report. Okay. Thank you, Heather. That was great. Are you? Did you publish, David? Is it published? Yeah, it's published. It's uh, it's available, I think, online for free. Um, it's an article I wrote with. Um, oh, awesome. Laura Gottlieb, who is the um, head of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Um, yeah, really, uh -huh. really trying to focus on what we try to do in primary care and how, you know, building uh -huh. teams, measuring progress, aligning with public health are just core features of not just social care and behavioral health, honestly, just everything. So I, I think Laura and I just try to take every opportunity to kind of emphasize whole person Care right. wherever there's a wherever there's a uh, an opening, and that was one. Awesome, thank you. Um, just a quick question. Any um, questions for Heather? I do. Um, you had mentioned you know a reduced focus on vaccination, trying to kind of increase primary care access again. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering with like the, the new surge, is there any additional effort to kind of continue to promote vaccination, um, you know, as you're going along your routes? Yeah, so the mobile health clinic team does have vaccine with them at uh, when they're out providing care to patients. And so it's listed as an available service and it continues to be promoted. Um, it's just definitely not our focus. So. Uh, during those other three months, we were not providing regular care. We were providing only vaccine clinics. So we would go to a site, and then it was vaccine, 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 and no other care. Mm -hmm. um, so now, at Alameda Health System, we are working on getting the vaccination of patients into regular care so that there aren't standalone vaccination clinics, but rather, when you come for your appointment, you're able to get a vaccine as part of your regular care at your regular site. Um, including the patients can still drop into their regular site to get a vaccine-only appointment. So a patient at Eastmont, who is a patient at Eastmont, for example, can drop into their primary care provider at Eastmont and say, I'd like to get my COVID vaccine, and they will vaccinate that patient. They'll put them into a nurse template, vaccinate them,
them and get them on their way. Um, this helps us with staffing. So prior to this move to integration, um, we were staffing an extra space with specific staff who all they did for the whole day was, was vaccinate patients. And it was because of the volume of people that were coming in vaccinated, but that volume has dropped significantly. I will say anecdotally that um, here at the Highland Vaccine Clinic, we're seeing we're seeing a mini, I'll call it a mini surge. It's it's not huge numbers. We're not seeing the same number of patients we saw at the beginning where we were seeing, you know, maybe 80 to 90 patients getting their first dose when they were coming in. Um, right now we're seeing about 20 patients getting their first dose when they come in. And this is an increase from what we were seeing um, in uh, late June and early July where it was dropping to 10 or fewer first doses per day, where our second doses were definitely far outstripping our first doses. But we're now swapped again to seeing more first doses than second doses because of this new little surge of interest. Yeah. Um, I had a question here about the dental clinic. The, um, is it limited service as to what they can do on the mobile van? And if there's something that's needed that they can't do there, do they refer them to the dental at Eastmont? Thank you so um, much. Question. I'm going to also plug that in next month, our dental team is going to come and present um, their both their program plan and outcomes um, so far, as well as maybe some ideas about what some next steps will be. So, so just here's a little a little teaser for next month with our oh. dental. But um. It is limited service, so they're doing primary, primarily um, examinations, and then yes, they're right. doing blood care at East Month, so that provider can see them um, at their at the East Month clinic. Oh, cool. Super, super. Any other women or um, anyone? Do we have any public comment, Heather? I don't see That's any members. Okay. I, I see no members of the public with us today. Yeah. Okay. And are there any last minute comments that anyone would like to make before we adjourn? I think Kayla was going to look up for us last time around um, the retreat and if uh, if we were going to be, you know, required to do that in person. It doesn't seem like, I mean, with Delta virus, it seems there's no way that there's going to be a requirement for us to meet in person, and it seems prudent for us to do that virtually. So I think we're going to ask the retreat team to just move forward, planning that to be a virtual engagement, and um, and we'll adjust the time. Um, you know, with the, with guidance from Lucia and Richard as to, you know, how much time is reasonable to do virtually for everyone. Yeah. Okay, nothing else? Yeah, and just in response to that, I have nothing to add. Um, Governor Newsom said that the Brown Act would be fully back to, you know, its full requirements in November, but I think there has been comment recently due to the new surge in the Delta variant that that might be extended further. So I'll provide an update um, 
it, yeah, I, as Damon said, it looks like that can be virtual as well. So, um, thank you, Tana. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, if no one else has anything else, we're going to adjourn. The time is 7.42. And we're now adjourned. <laughs>